Hey, thank you for listening in to Risky Benefits, a podcast that informs you on all things benefits. We've got a saying around here. Benefits isn't your main business, it's ours. Hey everyone, and thank you for listening to Risky Benefits, and welcome to this week's episode. Today, we have Andrea Messina from the Florida School Board Association here to talk to us about how school districts are planning to reopen in the fall. Um, We understand that there's a lot of worry about what's to come this school year, and we hope this information can help our listeners feel more informed so you can make the right decision for your family. Um, Before we learn more about what to expect this upcoming school year, let's overview some of today's discussion. So three major subject matters that we're going to cover today, uh, the school board and state's role in reopening schools, the types of protocols schools may follow to prevent COVID-19, and alternative options for parents wary of sending their kids back to school. Um, That being said, that's what we're going to cover today. Uh, If you find some subject matter more relevant than others, feel free to push forward in the podcast. Um, But let's let's, let's meet today the person that we've got on. Let's, Let's meet Andrea. Andrea, thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Very happy to have you here. Um, it's always good to get somebody in the know. I know there are a lot of, um, risk managers, a lot of HR managers with a lot of questions. There are a lot of people within the school districts with a lot of questions, but there are a lot of parents that are going to be happy to hear this and just better understand maybe what the world's going to look like. So, uh, before we do that, Andrea, if you don't mind, just tell our listeners about you, uh, what you do for the Florida school board association and, and maybe even kind of a little bit about your career. Okay, sure. First, let me tell you the Florida School Boards Association. Not everybody knows who we are and what we do, but we are the professional association for the constitutionally elected school board members here in Florida. We are affiliated with the National School Boards Association. There's a state school boards association in each of the states across the country. So we work together with other states on federal issues, but we work together with all of our districts within the state of Florida on advocacy issues. And we also are um, primarily the trainers for new school board members. When somebody gets elected to the school board, we're the ones that help to train them. And we also work with the school board and superintendent as a leadership team on governance issues. So that's the association. I am the executive director there, formerly the director of training. Prior to that, I was a school board member actually down in Southwest Florida, Charlotte County. I served three terms on the school board down there, so 12 years. And prior to that, I was a high school English teacher. So that's kind of my background. And what I do for the School Boards Association is really help to coordinate all the programs, um, the advocacy, the leadership development um, for school board members across the state of Florida. And, and more than that, uh, I, I am the on-call coach. So when, when school board members find themselves in a situation, they go, I don't know what to do about thus and such, or how do I approach whatever. They call me and they go, hey, does it make sense? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? And so I can kind of help coach them. Well, we definitely have the right person on the call today. Uh, I'm really happy to have you. And and, and with that um, depth and breadth of knowledge, this is going to be hopefully a very interesting podcast for the listeners out there. Um, Andrea, what if we start just talking about um, Governor DeSantis? And uh, recently he released a statement that schools will be reopening in August at what, what I think we're calling full capacity currently. You may have to correct me on that, but I believe it's full capacity. 
Um, what will be the school board's role in reopening schools? And, and talk to us about what you think that's going to look like. Well, I will say based on uh, the current, uh, and it happened this week, it was earlier this week that the governor came, and it actually wasn't the governor, it was actually the commissioner of education, okay. who is uh, kind of delegated some authority from the governor okay. who came out with that. But there's been a lot of talk this week about, well, okay, so who really does have the authority to direct school districts to open and at what capacity? Right. So if you dig deeper into what the Department of Education said under the commissioner of education, he basically said, if you want to open up schools just like normal, as if it nothing was going on, then you have no obligation to fill out any special learning plan or anything like that. However, if you are going to be asking the Department of Education for some sort of waivers on either attendance requirements or hours of learning or uh, fiscal, uh, any sort of fiscal uh, reporting, things like that, then they are saying, if you want us to do these flexibilities over here, we're going to have you complete a district uh kind of continuity plan for learning over here. So the districts were already planning continuity um, processes in every district. They've been working on these things, but the department kind of put in this layer of here are some requirements that you need to have within it in order for us to get to these flexibilities over here. So your question is, who's responsible? Well, we all have a piece is, is really the answer. And the department has said multiple times, and, and this is where we, the school boards association land, is that the decision to open schools should be made at the local, uh, the, the closest to those schools. So it should be made on the local level. Okay. Now, that decision should be made in conjunction with the health department and other professionals that deal with pandemics, perhaps epidemiologists or any of those other sorts of professionals. School districts are experts in education. They're not experts in epidemiology. So we, right. we have to rely on our health professionals to help guide us with what is safe and with what is um you know, what, what we need to do to make sure that not just our students, because that's where a lot of the focus has been, but with our staffs as well. So at the government level, essentially at the highest level, you could get approval to say, yes, we can go back. Um, but to your point, it would almost be that you'd go down to the county or the district level and say, Leon County versus Dade County. Leon County, based on what the healthcare professionals are saying, may choose, okay, we're going to do this. Dade County may say, well, we're, we're in a different circumstance here, down here. Our, our realities are different than their realities. They may choose a different uh, strategy for return. Absolutely. And okay. that is our expectation, is that individual districts will make decisions based on what's best for that district. And we've okay. actually already heard Miami-Dade say, listen, we're not even into phase two yet. So yeah. we're not going to be where, where this goal is. And what the department put out, what the commissioner put out, is a it, it truly is an aspirational goal. Five days a week, for all kids. And, and quite frankly, boards would have wanted that too. So would teachers, so would parents. Everyone has that as their aspirational goal. It's a shared aspirational goal. But we also recognize that there are many families who uh, don't want to send their child to school five days a week. Or there are many teachers who can't work five days a week because they have vulnerable family members or they themselves have some sort of underlying health issue. So there's a lot of 
sort of flexibility. And it's really, I, I dare say, this is the single most difficult year for school to start that I have ever ever heard of. And anyone that I know who has far greater experience than I has said the same thing. Getting school open this year is, is it's just a monumental and extraordinarily complex task. Yeah. It, it, you know, Andrea, I was on, uh, I called my brother-in-law the other day. He, he's on the Virginia Tech basketball staff in Blacksburg, Virginia. And he's very his, familiar with the Hokies. Yeah. Yeah. So, my, he, so my, uh, my sister, uh, her two sons, they're trying to figure out the same thing we are here in Florida. Right. Yeah. And he he mentioned to me, he's like, yeah, I think they're going back in August, but they're going to go three days instead of five days. And the joke in the text was, you know, apparently those other two days that you don't come, you can't get COVID on those days, but you can't, right. you know, the three days are, are, are clean and as opposed to five. And, you know, it, it's so interesting. There's no easy solution. And to your point, you know, I talked to our neighbors, um, they're trying to figure out what to do with their kids. And they say, well, you know, we're, we've been putting our child in daycare this whole time because both of us have to work. Well, at that point, the exposure is really no different between daycare and, say, school. So it's in, interesting how every family's actual scenario might change how they're looking at this return to, to school policy, which kind of takes us into, and you somewhat answered it, the, the, the next question I had on here, which was, um, will all Florida public school districts follow the same protocol for opening or will it vary? It sounds like it's going to vary. Yes, absolutely. We expect it to vary. And, yeah. you know, some, in fact, I was just talking to a school board member before I, I joined this podcast and in his county, it's a small rural county. He said, you know, they're ready to go. They want to go back and they think that all kids should be there every day. And that's what their parents are asking for. He said, but I also recognize we have a much smaller population. Um, our kids have been remote uh, because they live in a rural area, so they haven't been congregating. And, you know, that community is ready to do that. But then I talked to some some board members in some larger communities. I know Orange County last night had an 11-hour school board meeting, 11 hours. Um, And there were people, citizens, who watched all 11 hours of it because they really are concerned about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And even within districts, there's conversation about elementary levels doing something different than middle school or high yeah. school. So it's not even just from one district to another. It could be within a district. I'm really happy to hear that. It's actually nice to see that. It's nice to see when your government's able to be that nimble and that flexible in order to to effectively operate. And, you know, as you think about children at the grade level and the need for socialization, especially, you know, at the, at the younger years, uh, ver- versus then the, that same need at the collegiate level, not as much. And then mm-hmm. keep going down to the high school level. It's it's great, but but they're they're not developing fundamentally in the same way that say a kindergartner is or a first grader is. So I kind of wondered, just from that perspective, will we see differences in strategies by tier? It's nice to know that there's an option there for that to happen, and it's nice to know that that. Not only is that an option across the board, but even by specific school district, they can make their own decisions based on the realities that they're faced with. I I really like hearing that. Um, To that degree, do you have any perspective on what some of those strategies might look like? Yeah. So what um, districts are really trying and struggling and working on figuring out is how do we provide 
flexibility. So let's just let, let's just make a pretend sin- scenario. I've got a family. Um, the kids want to come to school five days a week. So they start coming to school five days a week. But then somebody in that family gets exposed to COVID. Maybe not even the kids at school, maybe the family. So then, okay, that that family, however many kids now is recommended because they've been exposed to someone who directly has been tested positive or maybe sick. Uh, So then those people, those children now have to technically quarantine for two weeks. So how do we go from this full-time five days a week to now we got to quarantine for for two weeks? And if they quarantine and if they test negative the whole two weeks, okay, then they come back. But it could happen again. So it's coming in, going out, coming in, going out potentially. So how do we allow for that? How, how can we staff for that? How can we provide physical spaces that would accommodate um, social distancing? You know, in fact, I heard in Orange County, uh, they're talking about hallways, gyms, any physical space that they have is going to be retrofitted for classroom space because they need to space the students out the best they can to try to recognize the social distancing requirements. So that's one thing. Um, In some districts, and I spoke to a a school board member last night, they were talking about what what would be referred to as an A-B schedule. Students, um, one, let's arguably call it high school English, okay? So in high school, well, let's just say high school kids. Let's not even just say English. But um, some students will come to school on Monday, Tuesday, then because of social distancing, that limits the number of exposures that those kids have and it allows for social distancing in the classes. Then Wednesday can be reserved for deep cleaning. So between the students that came Monday, Tuesday, there's a deep cleaning process. Then Thursday, Friday, another set of students comes in. So you've got the A section and the B section with cleaning in between. So there's that. There's also sort of a... Uh, a hybrid of in class and at home. So you might come to school in the morning. The A group might come in the morning, go home. B group comes in the afternoon. So there's all sorts of different, as many different, probably even schools, not even school districts, but as many different schools as there are is however many different options might be out there. But, but getting that to work within the confines of families and our, our professional st- teaching staff is really going to be a challenge. But I got to tell you, school districts recognize that as of spring last year, when people had to go home and uh, learn remotely um, for that length of time, now there's, there are some expectations of more flexibility for fl- families. So it's going to push districts to, to be more flexible, not just in the immediate, but in the long term. Mm-hmm. So there will be some maybe more flexibilities that people are asking for and that schools will find ways to deliver. I mean, Andrea, honestly, it's the same thing we're dealing with in the work environment. I mean, just at FBMC alone, we did a survey on employees who have been working remote. And we asked how many of you would like to stay in the, the work environment that we currently have. And we had about 84 percent of the population of employees come back and say, we like the idea of a different working environment moving forward, whether it be a mix of going into the office half the time and staying at home, whether, you know, so it's created even in our space, similar types of, of, of 
we'll call it evolutions to the system. And it sounds like, like really the classroom's going through the same evolution of, okay, well, what is this going to look like? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if you have any input on this, but within these strategies, you know, you're talking about the logistics of social distancing, you know, do you have smaller class sizes? Do you have just bifurcated classes where maybe you shorten the class hours and it's a four hour, four hour or a class A, class B? What about even mixing in, say, uh, virtual type options? What does that look like within the state? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, there's one school district who um, they are before the COVID even came, they are a what's called a one to one school district, which means each student in the school district has a an electronic device. Okay, mm. so they, that's called one to one, one student, one device, everyone okay. has one. And there are many, many kinds of virtual learnings that can take place, including but not limited to And this district had already been working through some of these, um, like frog dissection, for example, right, you don't have to get an actual frog and and not just um, virtual learning, but also the, you know, you wear the goggles and you got the 3D pieces and you can manipulate things and you can kind of touch things, the artificial intelligence type stuff. There, there are some school districts that are already doing things like that. Okay. Um, and, and there are some devices that classrooms can use, which um, there's one device I know of that Typically in classrooms, there's uh, sometimes amplification devices for audio. So students who are hard of hearing can hear better and the clarity of the teacher's voice uh, comes through. So there's kind of some speakers in the room and a little necklace device. Well, they have um, uh, systems connected to that that, that have uh, cameras that are up in the ceiling, which can be used to, while the teacher's in the classroom with group A, that camera in the ceiling can shoot it out through some live platform to the students who are at home in the same class. So there are ways to do things. And there's, there are districts. In fact, years ago when I was a school board member down in Charlotte County, we had a a teacher of Mandarin Chinese. um, And that teacher was in one of our high schools that was pretty far away from the other two high schools, but students in the other two high schools wanted to be able to take Mandarin Chinese but then the travel time for the teacher would be lost productivity. So we connected some uh, live stream with the teacher in the classroom in the one high school to the other two high schools. And students were able to take Mandarin Chinese remotely from a teacher, you know, three, three high schools over if they chose to. So there's a lot that has already happened that's certainly being amplified. It's funny because certain generations could be listening to our conversation, Andrea, right now and just freaking out because they're mm-hmm. sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, change, not enough structure. Then you're hearing other, probably other generations or or really maybe it's just personality types, but other other personality types may be sitting here listening to this and just their creative wheels are spinning. And they're thinking, wow, what an opportunity to engage people in the way that they need to be engaged to be more effective. You know, not everybody learns in the same environment as effectively as others. And maybe this actually opens the door for certain people uh, to learn in, in a different and new way that that's more effective for them. I, I love what you're saying here. Um, you know, oh, I, and I, let me add, there, there are many teachers too, who found hmm. that in this, we call it remote learning environment, innovative learning, whatever you want to call it. There are some teachers who really have shined and yeah. found a creative outlet that they didn't even know they had. So it's on both sides. 
That that's awesome. You know, one of the other things in a prior podcast, Andrea, uh, or or even maybe a discussion I had with somebody, a teacher said to me that they were seeing more engagement with the actual parents than they were able to obtain in in the prior world before COVID. Because when we went into this window of time where the parent actually their kids were doing the virtual learning, the parent had to be there and had to be engaged, had to get the homework. And it was, it's, I feel like I'm not saying that the the parent was necessarily engaging with the child more, but the parent was engaging with the teacher more. And as a result, it, it created a healthy line of communication between teacher and parent, which, which, um, you know, debatably in my opinion, uh, is healthy. I, I think it's a good thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm loving what you're saying. You know, I don't, Andrea, I, I, I follow a lot of tech stuff online and I'm a, I'm a user of, of what I like to call cool gadgets. And, um, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but during COVID, the number of programs out there for learning to play the piano or the number of programs out there for learning to play the guitar or master classes, as they call them, are, are expanding. And it yep. almost makes me wonder in this new world, if we might see the school say, okay, Classic education and the things that you need to obviously math, science, uh, reading, et cetera, got to have these. For years, uh, with budgets as they are and taxes as they are and some of the challenges that the, that we face, some of the programs face cuts in certain districts, not necessarily in others. And I almost wonder if in this environment where social distancing is important, um, just the, the needing funds and, and the lack of funds that may exist – if, if we move towards a core curriculum that just sticks like that and people start to get some of that additional curriculum from these programs like apps on music or what, you know, who knows where where this all could go for us. Um, you know, it's an interesting concept. Um, and I will tell you, there are um, – <laughs> There are so many things out there that for some people, it's overwhelming. For other people, it's like Christmas morning, you know? Um, But I will also tell you that by having the virtual learning and the distance learning in the spring, the other thing that it has really um, magnified is how important the teacher-student relationship is. And for a lot of, for a lot of kids, that, that virtual is not the same as being in a physical space with someone. So there are some people that I think are going to just keep moving forward and find that this is really what's going to be best for them. I think that's a smaller group than the people who say, I really appreciate the physical um, being in someone's physical space that that is really helping people appreciate each other in ways well, that they hadn't before. Well, you know, and to your, and, and even more along the lines of what you're saying, I, the simple reality is, is there's just so many dual working families that, that they just need the school as they can't take that extra time to educate and they need to essentially outsource that assistance to do that to the school system, which is a great, great benefit to a lot of dual working families. Um, and so there's just a lot of people who need that anyhow. And, I think that face-to-face is just going to have to be possible, but it sounds like what you're saying and what I really like about what you're saying is, is there's so much flexibility coming from district to district to district that it's not going to be a one size fits all. It's going to, it's going to be a flexible enough, hopefully system where people are going to be able to have their needs met kind of based on the circumstance of a, the community and b their, their life circumstances. I think that that is going to be a requirement moving forward. That flexibility. I I really do. I think families, 
have come to expect it just from the last four or five months. But I also think our employees have come to appreciate it, you know, yeah. so there's 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 both of that. And there's an acknowledgement that for some students, the traditional classroom may have been holding them back. Yeah. And so this has some students have really flourished. There are other students that the distance learning has held them back. And so we need to get them back where we can get them to flourish. But the idea is really to find what works best for each child and find a way to get it to that child. Okay. So for those, and, and I, I love what you're saying there, I'm just thinking as we talk about the on-site aspects, any, any, you know, the safety protocols, health safety environment, um, any ideas for those parents and or people out there listening? Um, how are we going to prevent spread of sickness? Like hand sanitizers, like are there new protocols that we should expect or new things that you think will be coming from a um, managing physical space perspective? You know, that is probably one of the most challenging questions. And uh, again, I was talking to a school board member this morning who asked me, where are we supposed to get the money for all of these supplies? Where's right. that going to come from? And that's a real challenge because while we would, I mean, I, I also saw my nephew, who's a teacher in North Carolina. He said, listen, I'm allocated two boxes of Kleenex at the beginning of the school year. And he's a high school math teacher. And and I'm supposed to make that work under these conditions. Two boxes of Kleenex here, go have fun. He said it's just it's just not enough. So I think we're going to have to um, rely a lot on parents doing what needs to happen during the home hours. I think, um, you know, there's some discussion about teachers wearing masks versus wearing shields versus not wearing anything. Should the students wear masks? There's all sorts of conversations in school districts right now. In fact, just this week um, on the issue of should students wear masks? It's, it is still yet to be determined. Okay. Um, but, but it will be in conjunction with health professionals. Well, and that was what I was going to ask is uh, kind of a, to, to frame it in the terms of a specific question. Has um, the Florida School Board Association been receiving any kind of feedback, say from teachers, parents, uh, or the public, uh, on what people are looking for in order to feel safe enough to let their kids go back to school? Is, is anyone pushing information? I assume they are. And if so, what's that look like? Many, many districts are doing surveys and asking okay. their families, and not just their families, but their communities, what would it take for you to feel safe? The problem is that the answers are anywhere from A to Z. Okay. And there are, in fact, I got an email this morning from a board member who said he's got 50% of his community that says if they go back, they'll never vote for him again. And another <laughs> 50 that says if they don't go back, they'll never vote for him again. It, it's really you know, I really regret that our country is as partisan divided right. as it is these days, but we're starting to feel that in the educational area as well. So there's, it, there is no clear cut answer, which is why the flexibility has got to be important. Yeah, that, it makes a lot of sense. And Andrea, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for that. Um, it doesn't sound like anybody's coming in and saying, hey, this is the method that you have to use. Sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for flexibility. And within each local community, there's going to be, or district rather, there's going to be flexibility based on the, the 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 thoughts, desires, and or concerns of 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 local families that are obviously uh, using the school system. Or, I or but I don't part. want you to think the flexibility is going to be easy. Okay. No, yeah. It's not. 
Yeah. Well, and to your point, and, and, you know, anytime you're dealing with, with people's children, the stakes are high. And when stakes are high, um, it becomes a lot harder to manage and a lot harder to deal with. I will say as um, a parent of three, my wife and I have had, have thought that at least in Leon County, that they've handled it very well. And you know what, you may talk to some people who, who, who disagree with me, but I, I personally just running, being a, a part of an executive who runs a business and understanding how challenging it is, even in my environment, uh, I'm super grateful for how quickly people have responded and, and made things work. Because the reality is our kids got, they received education. We were able to work through the process and we got to summer. So for me, that's a pretty darn big deal considering everything that happened. Um, but that said, let's, let's move to the next question. I, uh, the next thing I had in here was that, um, Based on some Department of Education guidance that was issued recently, um, are there concerns at the school board level on their ability to fill on-site positions opened by teachers who are not comfortable returning to the work environment? That's a real concern, but with some of the flexibilities offered, they're going to need some teachers who aren't in the physical environment. They're going to need to to assign some teachers to that. I've also heard that due to so many people being laid off in so many other industries that people are now starting to look at, you know what, teaching might be a viable, more secure um, option for me. So it's possible we might attract some new people who never even considered considered teaching before. That actually makes a lot of sense. And especially when you're talking about an online teaching environment, you know, if you can craft, I guess, your the, the plan for the students and the educational program for the students and get that put together, um, managing that job from home may be a little easier for certain people than it was when, you know, in, in the prior environment. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, ultimately, what you're getting back to, though, is are there concerns with being able to find enough teachers or having ample funding for backfill to backfill openings created from teachers who are ill and unable to be on school sites? I mean, from a funding perspective, Andrea, are you guys concerned? Uh, you know, wh- what are you thinking there? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Are we concerned? Yes. Yes, okay. we're very concerned because that ultimately determines Unfortunately, the amount of money we have determines a lot of decisions um, or a lot of solutions to problems is how much can we afford? Because there are great things out there, but if you can't afford them, it doesn't matter. So, yeah, we have great concerns about funding. I will tell you that the department's executive order that came out earlier this week indicated that for the fall semester, there is a plan which would allow districts to have um, predictable funding without knowing what we're heading into for the semester. So some kids are going to be more uh, digital and some kids are going to be more physical. Normally, the digital students, you'd get less money to to educate them than you would for the physical. So how do we, we don't know what we're up against. How do we fund for that? How do we plan for that? And so for at least the fall semester, the department has recognized a need to, to provide some predictable funding. But when I say fall semester, I mean fall semester, not the full year. So the second semester could be different and districts could see substantial uh, funding holdbacks based on what happens in the first semester. Yeah, that makes okay. I, I'm following you because essentially the districts just don't know what's going to happen right now. They don't know how many right. kids are going to come back physical location versus virtual. So it's almost as if you have to wait until your expense outlay is set so that you can say, okay, here's what we've what we need to deal with. So is there any discussion around? current student process. You, you, you mentioned this earlier. If I get, let's just say that um, 
I get sick and I have three children. Um, how is the school district going to notate that the Ferris family, as an, as an example, um, had a COVID incident? Uh, we need to test the kids. We don't want them coming on location. Like, how are we going to track that from a school perspective? That is a monumental problem because don't forget, you as the parent, if you test positive, you have no obligation to tell the school district. You've right. got certain protections. So this is where we rely on our partners at the Department of Health. The Department of Health is really and you probably heard weeks ago the governor talk about bringing in some contact tracers and things like that. We're going to need families to be personally responsible and accountable for themselves and their children, but we're also going to need to rely on the Department of Health. We don't have staff. School districts don't have staff to start bird dogging all of this. We may or may not, some districts don't, have school nurses. Some schools do, some schools don't. And so there may or may not even be the ability for districts, schools, to kind of trace. Now, are they certainly going to put forth good effort? We know they will because they do that all the time. That's what they do. But there are going to be plenty of people who test positive with whom children live and the district won't even know about it because there's no obligation for those people to report that to the school district. That's that's one of our greatest concerns. Right. You know, we did on one of our prior podcasts, we did a uh, a podcast on something called safe entry. And we've just been looking at it with employers whereby it's basically a database and it's a web-based platform where people are logging all of this and they, you know, they have to put their temperatures in and it comes with a temperature check stuff. And you can see for the, for all the vendors coming in and out and for all the employees, you can manage it. I almost wonder if the future of the schools is, is, is having to utilize a system like that. But, but to your point, Andrea, even if they use a system like that, you're always dependent on what people are putting in there. Right. Um, you know, and, but then you start to see people say, okay, well then we're going to integrate this temperature check. Like if you have a temperature, it has to be taken and it has to be imported into the system. And that's a good leading indicator, you know, that, hey, something's not right here. Don't send the kid. Um, it'll be interesting to see because to your point, yeah, that's great. If, if we can afford these types of programs, uh, really that stuff comes down to, to funding. And if you want to get those types of things in place, because outside of that, you're managing, managing it with goodwill and spreadsheets. Um, and so I'll be very interested, you know, as a parent to kind of see how that progresses. Um, you know, I, when can the public expect to hear more information from, say, their district on what the specifics on the strategy is going to look like for them? Well, I would say in the this week, next week, the following week, the districts are going to be putting together their plans. So I would say they should pay attention to public uh, advertisements for school board meetings, school board workshops. The If the district is going to be submitting some sort of an innovative plan – for innovative learning, which would suggest not saying everyone's here five just like normal, but anything that deviates from what would have been considered typical last year, then that plan has to be to the Department of Education. I think the deadline is July 31st. Okay. So, so it would be before then or at July 31st, which might be the last day that they're finalizing the plan. 
Okay. So in essence, if you're a parent out there and you're just kind of wanting to stay in the know, really, you should be following your district's uh, website, I, I assume. And just, you, well, you, one would expect that they would see some of those updates there. Is that is that a safe thing to say? Yes. Uh, I would say, I don't know, you know, some districts are large and have full communication staffs. Okay. Some districts are much, much smaller and it's all they can do just to advertise for their school board meetings. Okay. So so if if your school district has Twitter or Facebook, I would say try to follow them so that you get the updates because a lot of districts put things out through Twitter and Facebook. Some districts, like you said, put it up on their website. So sometimes it's hard to find. You want to go to the school board meeting section and try to look at the agenda for the upcoming meeting. Um, But they'll probably send emails directly to parents. That would be my hope. Um, So there's any number of ways. But, uh, you know, the more ways that you have to get information, the more likely you are to get the most timely and regular information. That's that's actually really helpful, Andrea. I know just a lot of people, sometimes it's the basic stuff like that, which is just having effective communication and people just knowing where to go. So I know they'll be appreciative of of that that guidance and that feedback from you. I like to kind of towards the tail end of these podcasts, just talk to our expert and say, what else? You know, what else is there that you think people might want to know or should know or should be considering, whether they're a parent, whether they're an HR manager, a risk manager in the school system or or, uh, impacted by the school system, what else should we be thinking about? Well, I I do want to say that that I work with every school board member across the state. And in, I could say, in general across the board, they all want to do what's best for kids and their community. But they disagree sometimes on what that is. So the more they hear from their constituents, which include employees, then the better informed they are as they have to make difficult decisions. So, you know, there are people who will hesitate to reach out to their school board member and say, well, I don't know. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I strongly encourage people to reach out to their school board members, let them know what they think, because without that information, board members can only speculate. So the more information they have from people, directly from people, the better informed they are as they go forward making decisions. That's awesome. So be you are your best advocate. Um, and, you, you know, if you want to be heard, you got to communicate. That's right. Uh, I really like that. Andrea, really grateful to have you on today. Thanks for covering a lot of this. It's going to, you know, pr- promote, I think, a little bit of peace of mind for those who are just not in the know or have not had an opportunity to get plugged in. And they're just really wanting to know either where to look, what to expect. And I think you you really helped cover a lot of that for us. It's, it's greatly appreciated. Um, so, so really, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. And, and to all the listeners out there, thank you for listening in. And remember, you can find us and subscribe on any podcast app. And we look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you for listening to Risky Benefits. If you're interested in learning more, please visit www.fbmc.com. We hope you'll join us next time on Risky Benefits.